Hi, it's Calvin Niles, the Mindful Storyteller, and I am delighted to share with you stories of awakening. Each week, I'm going to be talking to people from around the world of various backgrounds and experiences. People I love, I know, and people I admire, but also those who are completely new to me. One thing all my guests will have in common is that they have been through a journey of awakening. By awakening, I mean a call to higher consciousness and deeper self-awareness beyond material reality. These stories will be real, challenging, funny, stimulating, and insightful. We're going to take our good time with these conversations. So listen from your comfy chair with your favorite drink, or on your weekend stroll, your morning routine, or whatever makes you happy. Stories of Awakening with me, Calvin Niles, and I look forward to you tuning in. Well, welcome Bill O'Brien, Bill O'Brien Consciousness Coaching. Thank you so much for joining me on this conversation of Stories of Awakening. Bill is a man of incredible experience and uh, doing amazing work. I'm just so delighted to have you to join on this show, Bill, for a conversation on your own story and uh, what brought you to serve in the way you do and um, anything else you want to share, basically. <laughs> so welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. So where did it all start for you, Bill? And um, I think, did you say you're in Pennsylvania, USA? Right now I'm in Bluebell, Pennsylvania. It's a suburb of Philadelphia. But I uh, started out in Washington, D.C. That's where I was born and bred. And um, I had sort of a spiritual uh, instinct from as long as I can remember. Um, it's sort of part of my identity. I've come to believe in reincarnation. So I figure it's built on something that came before. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> so here I come into this... Uh, kind of intensely Roman Catholic family, good people, um, dutiful, not especially tuned into who I am. So uh, that was sort of a uh, thing I had to uh, overcome as the years went by. They were married on the feast of St. Ignatius Loyola, July 31st. Uh, which matters because he was the founder of the Jesuit order. By the time I was born, they were living in a Jesuit parish in Washington, DC. The Jesuits for our listeners uh, are an international order of Roman Catholic priests, formerly known as the Society of Jesus founded in the 16th century, known for education. So born on the feast of the Jesuit founder, living in a Jesuit parish. Then I went to a Jesuit high school and a Jesuit college. And uh, then I joined the Maryland province of the Jesuits. And uh, <clears throat> I was really uh, passionate about the whole thing at the time, the whole Catholic thing, I mean. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, you do a two-year stretch called the novitiate, meaning when you're a novice. And um, after about a year and a half, I decided I wasn't quite ready to take vows, which is they were coming up in the six months later. So I left, I went back, I finished up my college, graduated, uh, and went back in because I still felt like that's where I belong. Now I felt, okay, now I'm ready. So here comes the good part. So uh, it's October of 1968. And we're having an eight-day silent retreat. And uh, <clears throat> it has been my experience my whole life that while I'm drawn to spiritual things, nothing much happens if I meditate or try to make something happen. Um, it's like I'm met with silence. So it's the fifth day of this, re this silent retreat. And... Uh, I'm sitting there and I remembered something my first novice director had said. He said, if, if you're not getting something from God that seems perfectly legitimate to be asking for, you can pound on the pew and demand it. So of course, uh, it, it's not pound on the pew time. This is a silent retreat. I'm in my room. So um, 
I just got sort of irate with God. And this turned out to be the best thing I've ever done because um, I told God, uh, look, <laughs> I, I don't just want to be one of those priests that kind of reads their theology notes. I, I want to be like this one and that one that I've met and really inspire me, like the novice director. And you can tell they're speaking from the heart. They're authentic. And I want to be that kind of priest. <laughs> I don't see why I've been in and out and back in again, and you're still ignoring me. So um, still feeling bored, I picked up these scripture texts that we were supposed to be praying with. And it was something I thought I knew what it meant. Turned out I didn't. Uh, it's the one where um, uh, in the Christian gospel of Luke, uh, <clears throat> uh, God is uh, presented as the master and we are the servant waiting for the master to return from a wedding feast. And it says, if he finds you waiting when he returns, even if it's a long time in the wee hours of the night. How happy will that servant be? The master will put on an apron and sit him down and wait on him. And that, you know, it's been 45 years and whenever, well, anyhow, that happened to me. And um, as is the case with these matters, as you know, Calvin, you can't put it into words, but I felt this uh, presence at my feet. And uh, I, I lost track of the fact that I was trying to make something out of my prayer. I was extremely, I was just totally drawn into this fascinating event. And uh, I, I remembered, it popped into my head uh, about Jesus washing the apostles' feet at the Last Supper. And uh, Peter says, well, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head as well. So I said something crazy like that. And uh, the, the whole thing just kind of enveloped me and um, I, I was gone. Uh, it went on, it, it's, that was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, I eventually uh, <clears throat> returned to myself around midnight. I had missed dinner and didn't even know it. Wow. Yeah, so I went around to the chapel <clears throat> Uh, the, the novitiate is a huge building shaped like an H. And at that time, there were not many people in it. It was after the vocations that started dropping off. Uh, so I'm walking through this big dark building down to the chapel. And I went in and I just sat there for about an hour. And there's a, um, Catholics have this uh, candle next to the tabernacle to sort of remind everybody that the, what Catholics call the real presence in the Eucharist is there. So I just sat there in the glow of that white light and uh, I just felt so peaceful. So I went back to my room uh, in the wee hours and um, I couldn't sleep, but I tried to. So um, the next morning, um, we had our 9.30 conference with the novice director. So there were about 20, 20 of us that year and we gathered in the conference room and I was still kind of, uh, floating and um, when he started talking I I found I could complete his sentences and uh, I, I, I felt like I was there inside, inside <clears throat> what he was uh, saying and then I, I realized my then my prayer had been answered that I, I want to be like him uh -huh. and so then I got sort of teary-eyed right there in the conference room. It was kind of embarrassing, but everybody understood by this time what sort of things went on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, that night, um, I had a, my own personal conference with him, and I was telling him about that. And he was just smiling and letting me talk. And he said, well, God answered your prayer, Bill. So uh, we proceeded. So I went on through um, 
um, the rest of the Jesuit course, which is quite lengthy. Even after college, it was uh, nine years for me. Wow. Uh, and uh, so uh, I went out to St. Louis to study philosophy, which bored me silly. <laughs> <laughs> and were you in your, what sort of age were you at this time? Were you, were you like a young 20s or when this all started? I was 23 when I had that experience. Wow. Yeah. 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 And was so, that, and when you were all, were you already doing, uh, sorry to cut you there, Bill. Were you already, a, were you already doing silent retreats as part of your Jesuit upbringing anyway, as a routine? So you were already f sort of familiar with that kind of environment, were you? From my first time in, I was, we had had an eight day retreat and a, a 30 day retreat. Um, so yes. And from being in Jesuit, uh, schools, uh, you're trotted off to make weekend retreats. Of course, they weren't quite as intense, but they were silent. As silent as teenagers get, but they were supposed to be silent. <laughs> yeah, teenage silent. <laughs> yeah, teenage silence. Oh, wow. Thanks for being part of this conversation. One of the things I'm learning during this series is that the chapters of each person's story are still being written. If you are conscious of a new story wanting to emerge in your life, but the clutter of your mind is slowing you down, a simple way to start is by decluttering your physical space. Subscribe and download my free ebook, Simplify Your Life, helping you to declutter and make way for the things that matter. Download your free copy at www.simplifyandmakespace.com. When you say that you missed dinner, um, that day, uh, six o'clock had gone, you'd realize you'd missed dinner. Were you in this kind of, could you describe that moment? You know, it sounded like you went somewhere or your consciousness <laughs> seemed to have been elsewhere maybe, or what, what was that experience like? I was definitely elsewhere. I, I didn't, uh, as I recall, uh, I wasn't aware of missing dinner at dinner time. It was afterwards when I kind of came to and it was dark out and I looked at my clock and I said, oh, <clears throat> missed dinner. Um, it was, uh, well, not real consequential. I mean, I, I could say it validated my experience, but I, I didn't feel like it needed validating. Um, yeah. I was just, okay, I missed, I missed dinner. I wasn't hungry or anything. Um, I don't think I got hungry till sometime the next day. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And were you sitting or were you lying down or? I was sitting at my desk like I am right now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's a lamp here and I could look out my window. I was on the uh, eastern side of the house. This is in Warnersville, Pennsylvania. So I'm looking out the window. Uh, at the hills of uh, Pennsylvania, and I can see the, the lights of Reading coming on as dusk settles. And uh, of course, the sun was setting in the west, but you could see its rays kind of uh, glowing in the valley. It was a uh, good setting. I noticed uh, I, spiritual things uh, seem to uh, cooperate better in the evening hours with me. Um, <clears throat> uh, I believe the, uh, the veil is thinner uh, at night. Mm -hmm. And uh, also I find uh, uh, prayer is more um, satisfying, let's say, if I've kind of done the main stuff uh, that I'm gonna do for today, rather than in the morning when I'm thinking about getting to it. So that's what I have to say about that. Interesting. And, and when you say that the veil is thinner, do you mean the sort of veil between material reality and sort of etheric or spiritual reality? Or what do you mean when you say the veil is thinner? Well, I think when we die, we kind of pass through another dimension into uh, wherever this uh, place of happiness is. And... Uh, that veil uh, is more easily penetrated when we pray. 
so, or at least when I pray at night. And uh, so spiritual uh, entities seem to communicate with me better or my soul responds better. It's kind of hard to put into words. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, the resurrection of Christ, Not I'll get off head stuff in a second. Um, I had a debate with a friend of mine that's it's kind of trendy in theology that the resurrection didn't actually happen. So I was reading, it was sort of metaphorical, but I believe it did. And anyway, um, I was reading the autobiography of a yogi by Sachi Dananda Yogananda. Yeah. And on, uh, I think it's page 152, it's carved in my psyche. There's a footnote in which he describes how the yogis of India routinely pass through the veil back and forth whenever they want to. So I thought, even though it seems like a big deal to us, the resurrection was no big deal to Jesus. So I, I believe in all that stuff. So I don't know, have I answered your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, it, was, it was really just a really powerful image. And I was, think, I was, I was trying to imagine, you know, what, <laughs> what that was. Yeah, <laughs> imagine what that was like for you and, um, and what that, how that sort of experience of piercing the veil in the evening. Okay, so yeah, wow. This is <laughs> I knew I knew this was conversation was a gonna be a good one, and we're only a few minutes in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we're just getting started. <laughs> so so yes, yeah, so obviously that that took you um further along. Yes. So uh then I went out to St. Louis for philosophy, which bored me silly. I also got a master's degree in urban affairs out there because around that time the Jesuits uh had an official uh, conference and decided to shift their focus to social justice, a, a faith that does justice. So uh, I was all in. So we, we had a place uh, in the inner city of St. Louis. So I moved down there. So of the three years I was in St. Louis, I spent two and a half down there among the poor. And uh, it was uh, a trying experience because you're doing without a lot of convenience plus you're, you still got your studies and uh and you have to go to class and everything but um it it kind of gave me a more of a felt sense rather than a belief um of how the world looks to the poor and and, and how they experience it because this was a poor neighborhood and the international headquarters of ralston Carina, which are shaped like a tall silo were right there down the street and and they kept the, the the bank of the building facing us was all glass and they kept the lights on all night so just that one irritant that the light from this building is coming into your bedroom all night <clears throat> you got a sense of all the things that poor people experience i i also learned to be uh thorough that you can't romanticize the poor there's uh good people and nasty people and people who would willingly get out of that and people who just kind of settle in and throw in the towel. Uh, but I do think society needs to be organized better. So we're all on more of an even keel. Yeah, well, I find that really fascinating, this, uh, this experience in terms of, you know, you've gone through this educational journey and then some of it was really boring, some of it wasn't. What switched on the light then for you later because would you say you had already settled into your purpose then by this time um after you had this kind of awakening experience and you went and and you know how did that start to show up in the work that you did or the conversations that you had or maybe you had another version of a similar experience that happened after that how did that kind of start to unfold with you that's a good question well i would say that experience when i was 23 set the the course of the whole rest of my life and the uh, living among the poor was both an extension of that as as an expression of it you know yeah because um, yeah. you know it makes you more inclusive and more zealous um more caring and empathetic uh um so i, I did that uh, partly because the order was going that way and that's why i was getting my master's uh but it was always back there and I, I wanted to do 
specifically spiritual work. But I also had this thought that I didn't want to be in a sort of an ivory tower. Uh, you know, I wanted to be getting my hands dirty a little bit, so to speak. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but that experience did set the, the course of the whole rest of my life. Wow. Wow. So the next thing is um, uh, you go and you teach. It's called Regency, which means it's a time when you rule. So uh, we, I taught high school for two years in Baltimore, Loyola High School in Towson, outside Baltimore. And I taught uh, junior and senior U.S. history. Uh, and that was a, a trip. I needed some love at the time, Calvin. Um, my, my parents were not artistic in that area. They meant well. <laughs> 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 they, <laughs> they didn't have the finesse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my students just loved me, and that was great. So, uh, of course, I loved them in return. So we all had a a big uh, agape there. However, uh, I was eager to move on and become a priest. But anyhow, that was a healing experience. Plus, mm -hmm. I got to tell them about Vietnam, which seemed to be, uh, they'd say things like, oh, uh, we heard about you guys protesting. No, it's like that was bad. The war was good because that's what the government was doing. So mm -hmm. I, I had a chance to present the, the other point of view. One day in uh, St. Louis, we decided we would block the main artery into the, to the city. Uh, but somehow the police heard about it. So they got there ahead of us. So they were lining the curb, blocking our way into the street. So we ended up chickening out and not doing it. But I, I was right opposite a police officer. And I, I looked into his face and he was the same age I was. And uh, he looked scared. And I thought, okay. That's that's good information to see the the other side. You know, it's not just a a stereotype role. Okay, so I got to tell my students about that, and they were duly impressed. Well, some of them were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 this is um, you being able to bring a human element too um, to this kind of insight. I mean, we're in an interesting time right now. Obviously, you know, you mentioned the Vietnam War and, um, you know, somebody of your experience and, and the things that the times that you've obviously lived through in the war that you're doing. We're, we're still seeing pretty much the same problems, aren't we, even right now? And, and yeah. the language that you use there, when you look that policeman in his, in his eyes and you saw that he looked scared. It, you know, it's quite amazing that we sometimes forget the humanness. Um, in a lot of this, uh, and I, I, that's coming through very clear in the way you taught, which, which I'm guessing is why the students loved you so much. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I still know a couple of them. Oh, nice. I thought of that uh, watching the news of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and how the soldiers were told they were going to liberate Ukraine. And uh, when they realized they had to shoot people, they say, well, they didn't tell us we had to kill people. So they began putting down the rifles, et cetera. So, uh, so then it was on to theology, uh, which is the last leg of preparation before ordination. That's a three-year stretch. So um, as a Jesuit, you're supposed to be indifferent, meaning detached from where you're assigned. So you're ready to go and sound the alarm wherever they want to send you. So. Um, I didn't feel detached. So instead of going to New England where all my friends were going, I told my superiors I wanted to go out to Berkeley, California where there was another theologate. So I did, uh, but I kind of, uh, I was miserable when I got out there, I fell flat on my face. So this is a, a lesson in not, um, not running ahead of the spirit, um, you know, like uh, I'm going to uh, do this, I didn't feel, invited to go out to California. It was like, I'm gonna be a hero and do this. So I, uh, I got through my courses all right, but I requested a transfer back to where all my friends were, which was in Cambridge, Massachusetts at what was then Western Jesuit School of Theology. 
So theology was more interesting, but it was still a lot of books. And um, I'm, I've been blessed with uh, uh, good intelligence, but I've, I've never been the academic type. I, I'm more a person to person type. Um, so it was kind of a drag and I'm going to class and kind of had a bachelor's degree and a master's <laughs> degree and another friggin' master's degree. Yeah. So, uh, but we did it. So um, the first time I preached, I was scared. So you're ordained a deacon uh, in the fall of the year before you ordained, you're ordained in June. So you go out and you preach in a neighboring church. And um, I remember telling uh, my spiritual director, uh, I'm scared to death to get up there and preach. And he said, well, you've got a lot of good stuff to say. And remember, you have the protection of the pulpit. Nobody can, can answer back, so, at least not in the Catholic church. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought, OK. I give you a confidence boost. <laughs> yes, yes, I feel safe. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, not to blow my own horn, but it turned out I was a good preacher. So uh, that gave me experience. And uh, the next thing I started to dread was my first mass because my family would be gathered there. You know, your crazy cousin and your deafy uncle and everybody, and <clears throat> as well as people that knew you when you were a child. So. Uh, Looking back, it was a matter of uh, neuro uh, neurolinguistic programming. I program my brain, not realizing it, mm -hmm. by rehearsing myself doing well at my first mass, especially preaching. Uh, you, you program your mind, and then when you get there, your mind kicks in, which it did. We were out in the playground next to the there's a school next to the church playground, and we were lined up. And as soon as the organ music started, I, it was like I had taken an anesthetic or a Valium or something. I just relaxed, it was great. And I just, hey, I'm gonna be cool with this. Wow. So we pulled that off. Okay, so uh, after a year of uh, uh, serving in my own parish, which was in uh, Holy Trinity in Georgetown, um, uh, well, I might as well put this part in. It makes me human. Um, I was, <laughs> uh, I clashed with my, uh, with the pastor of the parish. This is my first assignment and I'm a rookie, right? He had a problem, which I won't mention. Um, but I was out audacious enough to point it out to him. <laughs> so, uh, my days there were numbered, but, um, <laughs> 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 Looking back, um, I, I was still uh, uh, fighting my father. That's what I was doing. And uh, this poor guy, I mean, what I told him was true, but I guess life is a learning experience. So uh, that's one reason I'm glad we have reincarnation. You can say, okay, I, I won't do that again. So, um, Anyhow, uh, I was uh, sent to a retreat house. Of course, I was happy about that. And uh, as far as the work went. So uh, that was like heaven. You know, I was doing exactly what I wanted to do all day long. And uh, after about four years, I got bored doing that. Well, I, w I wanted to be, I wasn't bored exactly, but I wanted to be more out in the, what you might call the real world. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, once again, I was clashing with my superior, but um, he, he didn't ask me to leave. I decided it would be a good idea. <laughs> so I asked for a transfer. So I was made the director of campus ministry at what was then Wheeling College in West Virginia. And um, <clears throat> Uh, that was a really challenging experience because you don't have any uh, real leverage over the kids unless you go in the classroom and teach, then you have a grade book, you know. But uh, if you're just counting on their uh, enthusiasm for <laughs> the religious quest, it's, it's a little difficult to get traction. So 
after two years, I said, uh, I'd like to do parish work. So off I went to, this time I did not clash with my superior, by the way. So, <laughs> and the provincial pointed that out to me. He said, I'd like you to notice that you haven't taken on the president of this institution. <laughs> I said, thank you. you. So you always had this rebellious, you had a rebellious spirit then for a while. Yeah. You sort of knew what you wanted um, and you made that known <laughs> pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Can I yeah. can I ask you a question about um sure. A little while ago you mentioned that uh, when you uh, wanted to go to Berkeley and you said um what you made a comment about not rushing the spirit or going in advance of the spirit or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. Um did you mean that your personal will you used your personal will to override kind of like a divine will or is that what kind of what you felt after arriving at Berkeley and how what did you mean by that am I describing it in a reasonable way and how did you realize that you were rushing the spirit at that time in the end right good question um <clears throat> I didn't feel like I was overriding the divine will um I was choosing the harder thing, um, which if you spiral down to the root of that, I was, I was uh, uh, trying to be a hero when I wasn't being called upon to be a hero. Um, uh, but there was a certain amount of um, virtue in wanting to um, exercise this thing about being ready to go where you don't necessarily want to go. So anyway, um, I, I was just so unhappy out there. I don't know why, but I, um, well, it was, it was right after teaching all these students and all this love flipping around. And now you're back out there uh, with three more years of books looking at you and all your friends are in New England. Most of them. I did know some people there. Uh, so I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, so it was more of a case of you coming to the realization. I guess you missed your your friends, your friendship group, and everything, but then that gave you space maybe to reflect, and then you reflected, and you know you had a a realization of you know wanting to be a hero when you didn't really need to be. And I, did it happen at that moment, or did you reflect later on, like years down the line, and went, you know? Now I look back at that Berkeley adventure. <laughs> Ten years later, you're like, I was trying to be a hero there. Really. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of looking back. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I don't think I would have put it in, in the same terms I did today back then. Um, I, I would have thought, um, okay, Bill, you bit off more than you can chew. So. Let's go crawling back to Cambridge and, yeah. and uh, face it. So, yeah, that makes sense. But then, and this is kind of significant, um, I wasn't happy in Cambridge either, even though I was, we lived in house, residential houses around Harvard. And uh, <clears throat> um, I was with some of my closest friends, but I was still kind of empty inside. I think I was missing that teaching experience in my students. And you go from, all these people loving you to books <laughs> and three years of it and are just kind of depressing and I maybe I was depressed I don't know looking back uh but it it's in more recent years that I would have described it as the hero thing yeah, yeah. okay yeah uh, thank you for that yeah that makes sense yeah okay so um so yeah, so moving moving back to sorry, I know I jumped back in time a little bit there, mm -hmm. um, but moving back to where you were, and um, you're now sort of uh, so you had the audacity to <laughs> to make your feelings known, <laughs> and that kind of uh, you you had this one moment where you know you were sort of was it your spiritual director who said, you know I hope you notice that this has now happened without your without your um pushing back or without your sort of normal rebelliousness <laughs> surfacing <laughs> you mean when he said you haven't taken on the president 
Yeah. He didn't have to say that. I got the message. Uh, (laughs) For a long time, I was wondering why they were complaining about what I was rebelling about because it was true. I, I was telling them the truth. And at one point they said, you know, no one's saying you're not right. It's just that, you, and this is a good, one of them said human nature can only absorb so much truth. Uh, so you have to be a little less uh, direct and uh, they didn't want to say it, but be reminded of my place in the situation. That's a big, that's a big insight right there, actually, Bill. Uh, yeah. You know, this kind of knowing when is a good time to push and when, you know, because that's always a challenge, isn't it? Sometimes we in, in our lives um, as human beings, uh, and I could certainly know, tell, tell you in my own life of times where I'm just like, right, I need to push this and make this happen because it's right. It's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. But there comes, and that's another thing, actually, the wisdom seems to only arise afterwards. It's like no one can ever really teach you that. Hmm. Experience is the best teacher, as they say. Yeah. yeah. I think that's true. So um, I keep that in mind. If if somebody gets in my face, I say, okay, this is a little karma here. So... um, so I'm in Philadelphia, my, my last assignment as a Jesuit, and uh, <clears throat> the provincial said, um, uh, he was sending me there, because there's a parish in uh, Old City, Philadelphia, uh, near Independence Hall, it's called Old St. Joe's, old because it was the first Catholic place there. And he said, we've been trying to turn this place into a spiritual center for years, but we just haven't been able to do it. So go do your thing. And uh, we're, we're pretty sure you're like this. So I did. But <clears throat> after about three years there, I sensed this shift inside me. And uh, I told the, my superior, who was the pastor, I said, I, I'd like to go into Jungian analysis because uh, uh, Jung appealed to me more because you're dealing with dreams and the unconscious. I don't know, Freud, Freud was too negative. So, uh, we did. So my dreams, um, that's what you do in, in Jungian analysis. You talk about your dreams, which I never got my dreams much. But once you commit, you start having dreams. So I had dreams to, to kind of summer. I'm watching the clock here on my computer to, uh, kind, of, <laughs> to kind of summarize. Uh, I had rebirth dreams. And one day on my way over to the analyst, I was standing on the corner. He was a few blocks away, so I walked. I was standing on the corner waiting for a red light to change. And uh, I'm trying to balance things out here. Like I'd wanted to be a Jesuit all my life. Thought I was happy. And uh, somehow I got the message, just leave. And, um, uh, <laughs> and that seemed to shift all the pieces of the kaleidoscope around into a a beautiful mosaic instead of a jumble of chaotic pieces. So I said, hmm. <laughs> so I ran that past my analysts. Of course, they don't tell you much. They just kind of nod. Uh, anyhow, I left the Jesuits in uh, June of 1988. And I, as I'm going out the door, uh, I said to my soul, because I didn't have a plan, I said, okay, now what? And what came back was shaman. And I, I I thought that was cool because I'd read Black Elk Speaks and uh, Lame Deer Secret Visions and I kind of had a feel for Native Americans, uh, but I didn't know how to connect with all that. So uh, I did a lot of uh, interim weird things like uh, selling cable television door to door. And I was a real loser at that. And um, uh, I don't know what else I did. Oh, then I started a spiritual center. That's what I did. I started a non-denominational spiritual center uh, called the Nathaniel Center for Spiritual Growth. And so I had broadened my paradigm out from both Catholicism and Christianity. That was something I discovered. I wasn't a Catholic anymore. I wasn't just not a Jesuit. 
later in shamanism, I learned uh, that it's a, it's a passage on the medicine wheel, uh, which is uh, uh, the, the patron of this section of the medicine wheel is the serpent. And you shed your past the way the serpent sheds its skin. Uh, and so that's when I understood why I had left. I had outgrown the Jesuit order. I actually left on intuition. I couldn't really explain it to anybody. Uh, so the Nathaniel Center, and that was good. I got to, uh, I got to say things you can't say as a Jesuit, you know, about Buddhism and et cetera. Yeah. So um, life moved us on. Um, oh, I ran afoul of the, uh, the auxiliary bishop, the Catholic bishop of Washington. And he sent a letter out to all the pastors in Washington. Uh, we, we think it best that Mr. O'Brien not be advertised in the parish bulletins. <laughs> so um, he was a real uh, right-wing guy. So uh, one of my pastor patrons said, uh, you can take him on if you want to, Bill, but I wouldn't recommend it. So we left Washington, went to Rockville. Uh, we were there three years. I continued to have people coming from Washington continue doing seminars, like I created an eight week seminar um, on, it's my foundation course, it's called the Nathaniel Program, eight weeks of meditation and spiritual awareness training. And then our friends moved to Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And um, I, I said, I, we went to visit them and the energy, I said, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta live in Chip. By this time I'm married, I married in, to Linda in 1997. And uh, she was of a uh, similar mind <clears throat> to myself. So we lived there for 16 years, um, but it was really hard to uh, make a living there doing what I do because um, the, I hope none of them are gonna listen to this. They're great people, but they don't wanna part with their money. <laughs> so as long as it was free, it was get a big crowd. So um, anyhow, I had to, I had to do something to earn money. So for the next seven years, I taught Latin in Loudoun County, Virginia at Dominion High School. And that was fun. It reconnected all that loving experience, but it was a three hour round trip commute and I had five preps and I said, man. So around this time, Linda says, why don't we move closer to my, her family in Philadelphia? So we did. So that's how it got to be here in Bluebell. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm finding um, people much more receptive here, but yeah. I'm still becoming known. We've only been here since September. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, uh, I send out this thing um, several times a week called Wisdom Keepers, which is a little slice of my view of where things are, which is, you know, universal. And uh, I get to point things out to people. It feels very good. You, you don't know what you're accomplishing, but it, it feels good to be able to express yourself out there. Maybe you feel that doing what you're doing. Yeah. And uh, so I've been uh, pointing up the plight of the Native Americans and uh, I, I weave it in with um, white domination of uh, uh, the the African slaves and the natives. And I said, look, look at, look at what we're doing. And I get to write things like, um, I write to the local newspaper because they have a right-wing columnist and he doesn't get all this stuff. And so I wrote and I, I said, uh, what do you mean critical race theory? What's critical about it? There's, there's no, or what's theoretical about it? There's no, there's no argument here. And here's the record. And, um, uh, some people uh, don't call it white shaming when you when you talk about any of this or the natives. So I, I get to say white shame. Well, maybe it's it's Lent. How about maybe some shame would be good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, You're, you've taken the rebellious uh, streak and truth speaking nature out of the Jesuits, and you brought it straight to the press. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I like that. 
Um, you, you know what I was thinking, actually? Um, uh, thank you for sharing what a powerful journey. And, and I know it's always difficult to kind of squeeze and condense a whole life of amazing work into one single conversation. And maybe we can have another one, too. Mm -hmm. um, but you started by saying that, you know, this karmic propensity, you know, brought you to your life into the parents that you had in this Jesuit order. Mm. Did you always know from your Jesuit upbringing? I mean, do Jesuits accept karma the way you talk about it now? Is this something that you came to realize later? Or when did you start to use that kind of language in your sort of perspective on life? Mm. Well, I'm not sure, but probably after I left the Jesuits, I don't remember any of them ever using that word. I mean, they're a, a cool bunch of people, but they were they were firmly in the uh, frame of uh, Christianity and Roman Catholicism. You know, they were founded to uh, defend the papacy. <laughs> anyway, um, I, probably after I left, let me quickly run through uh, a few things that I did to sort of frame the karma thing. I began doing things I probably could not have gotten permission to do in the Jesuits. So um, I made a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnam Buddhist, uh, whom I consider a saint um, in Key West, and that was cool. And I began doing Buddhist meditation. Uh, and I got the insight that um, Buddha tells you how to live the way Christ tells you to live, but doesn't tell you how. Um, so that was cool. Then um, I, I went to Prague uh, in 1992 um, to one of Stan Groff's um, holotropic breathwork uh, conferences. And um, I had the experience that you go off into non-ordinary reality. And uh, I had the experience of being in the presence of a Native American uh, uh, elder uh, beating his drum and he wanted me to dance. And I got up on my mat and danced. And this, there's 300 people were all on mats doing crazy things. And um, afterwards, uh, people said, wow, what was that dance? And I said, I don't know. Well, can you do it again? No, I can't. What's it called? I don't know. <laughs> but anyhow, I got that experience uh, again of non-ordinary reality sort of induced by a, a breathing mechanism that he teaches. Um, so then we came around to Alberto Vialdo, my wife and I. I was looking for a really professional shaman type, going back to be a shaman. So um, we went out there for 28 days to the Mojave Desert, uh, the Joshua Tree Retreat and Conference Center, but you're actually in the desert. And for 28 days, we were immersed in, in shamanism. Um, and that's probably where I realized the serpent shed his skin because he outgrew it and all that and went back to my experience of leaving. Uh, and it, it's nice <laughs> when you can discover that something you did intuitively and which lots of people said, oh, you can't do that. It turned, leaving the judges turned out to be the right thing to do. And it gives you this great confidence that you can trust your, your heart. You know, um, Bill, two things just, I just had an insight. <laughs> I just had an insight in this conversation. So I'm going to share great. that. Gonna share that insight and also um you know you've also just kind of reminded me about you know you said in 1988 you just had this voice which just said it's time to leave the jesuit order but but then it became clear in the conversation you didn't know what you're going to do next and that was incredibly courageous um but i guess it was so clear to you that this move or step would have to be taken that I guess courage was courage even a question maybe um but I think it's just such a great example of following that intuition that God voice inside maybe um but the other the insight that I I think I've just had mm -hmm. there is a story um one of the oldest stories is is considered the oldest written story um the epic of Gilgamesh the tablets mm. and uh, in that story, I mean, I talk about this story all the time, but I just had an insight listening to you. This story is 
referred to as the oldest story. And because I, I work with a lot with stories and, and what I do, um, I refer to this a lot. But there's a part because he was meant to be Gilgamesh. I don't know if you know the tale, but in summary, he was meant to be um, this really malevolent part man, part God, ruler of Uruk, this kingdom. And mm. he, he, he basically goes on this long journey after um, befriending um, somebody who was basically sent to challenge his, his power, but he, he won. They became like brothers. And then this guy died after a, a really amazing story. But there's mm. a part that happens at the end because after his friend dies or who he perceived to be like a brother, he grieved so badly, he didn't want to experience death. And so he, he sought immortality. So when he sought immortality, he went to Ursanabi, the boatman, and then he eventually saw Utnapishtim, who told him the secret to immortality eventually, um, which was to get this um, plant from the bottom of this uh, body of water. He went, got the plant, swam back across the body of water, and right coming up to the end of the story, as he was getting out of the water, he, put the, he comes out and the plant is down on the ground next to him and a snake comes and eats the plant. And then the snake sheds its skin and becomes youthful. And ah. he, he realizes that the snake obviously is consumed, this um, plant of immortality. But ah. the, the insight <laughs> I think I'm getting right now, listening to you uh, yeah. about the snake and the serpent and the shedding of the skin that was the metaphor for um, for um, um, his transformation. That was his transformation right there. As you talk about shedding the layers around the circle, and that serpent shedding its layer, to me, becomes very clear. Because the way, the way this story is used, it's not really very clear how Gilgamesh transforms. Mm-hmm. But I think the answer is in the snake. And that's thanks to you, Bill. <laughs> well, <I'm glad> go. <laughs> I was thinking that all along. I just wanted to see if you could pick it up. No, I was <laughs> I got it. I got it. I got it. All right. <laughs> well, it's an absolute honor. Thank you so much for, for sharing a wonderful conversation with me. Um I'll put all of your connection details in the show notes and YouTube below in the description. And yeah, just delighted to have met you um, in this really organic way. This has happened now for a, cu- a couple of times um, for uh-huh. a number of people. Um, so yeah, yeah, just thank you so much, Bill. You're welcome. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. And you're a delightful human being. <laughs> thank you, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this conversation with me on the Stories of Awakening podcast. It was an absolute delight to have you here. And this is just a reminder to head over to simplifyandmakespace.com to collect your free decluttering workbook to simplify your life and make way for the things that matter.